Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. All right, I'm joined today by my regular co-host, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Mike. How are you? It's morning It's morning in America, Mike. Well, I'm you doing, know, I'm it's, doing great. This is our, <laughs> our delayed version of the show because there was so much to, uh, the, so much to take in. And I mean, the big thing, obviously, is that it looks like Republicans are going to get their massive tax cut now that the Senate has joined the House in passing tax cut legislation. And of course, there's still a House-Senate conference to get through. But at this point, it seems very, very likely that for better or worse, Republicans are going to have their first major legislative win of the Trump presidency. And, you know, I, I thought, Jay, that what we could do is sort of go through uh, sort of the deals that were made and kind of the last minute finagling, at least the high points, so to speak, sure. of it. And uh, then we could kind of get into our you know, deeper thoughts, our analysis of is this good or bad and that sort of thing, if that works for you. That sounds good. All right. Well, uh, there were a number of, of last minute sort of Republican Senate holdouts. And there was that a lot of the dealing kind of was you know designed to take care of those people. For instance, uh, Lisa Murkowski got uh, the Alaska National Wildlife Reserve opened up to oil and gas drilling, which uh, has been on her wish list for quite a while. And it's obviously something that a lot of environmentalists are very upset about. Um, Jeff Flake from Arizona got a promise that the Senate leadership would try to work out some sort of immigration deal that would protect the young undocumented immigrants. Susan Collins, who you know, I sort of hope might be a no vote, uh, uh, saved the state and local tax exemption at least up to $10,000 and also got a promise of action to shore up those Obamacare exchange markets. And then finally, uh, Steve Daines of Montana and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin both wanted more benefits for pass-through businesses, and they were accommodated too, although to do that, they had they needed to adjust the bill to take away a few corporate benefits, which were mainly related to the corporate alternative minimum tax, which originally was going to be eliminated entirely, but which the Senate instead kept, but just kind of weakened considerably. Now, there's one name I notably didn't mention, and that was Tennessee's Bob Corker, who um, didn't buy into the belief that the bill would be revenue neutral. And so Corker asked for a trigger mechanism to be included that would essentially automatically raise taxes when those revenue revenue neutral claims were proven false, which I think is highly likely. But we'll then, see. Well, yeah, we <laughs> certainly will, uh, for better or worse. And, but then the Senate parliamentarian said, well, we can't do that. Uh, and then Corker asked for some of those cuts to be rolled back over time to reduce the negative effect on the debt. And his colleagues weren't willing to give him that because, hey, they already had enough votes. So they were, they were good without Bob Corker. And so I think that pretty much takes us to uh, how, how we got to 51 Republican votes. Would you say, Jay? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, although I, I would say, you know, I, I just I think it's significant that uh, Thursday afternoon uh, or around lunchtime, uh, John McCain signaled that uh, he would vote for the the bill, uh, and the Dow Jones industrial rate rose by three hundred thirty points. Um, 
I think that's not 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 insignificant. So, oh, but, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. This is certainly this is certainly good for Wall Street and big business. And the the question to me is: Is it good for real Americans? And I think you and I are going to have very different answers about that. All right. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are though some important differences between the uh, House bill and the Senate bill. For instance, one real obvious thing, and I don't think this is going to be a problem in, in conference, is the Senate bill re- repeals the uh, Affordable Care Act individual mandate, and the House right. bill preserves it. And I think that it's gonna, that's going to go away. I, I don't think the House Republicans are going to have any problem agreeing to that, right? Yeah. Well, it's not so much the House bill preserves it. The House bill didn't didn't touch it in the first place, but yeah. They didn't want to get into that, but the Senate did. And so now there are a few differences on individual tax cuts. For instance, in the Senate bill, the individual tax cuts expire at the end of 2025, but in the House bill, those are permanent. Now that's going to be a little tougher to deal with because the Senate is required under those reconciliation rules that, uh, that it be budget neutral after 10 years. So I think the House is going to have to give a little bit on that. Yeah, my sense is the House probably will because that's one of those, um, uh, you know, let's call it largely symbolic um, uh, uh, giveaways to say, okay, it's going to they're going to expire because because what will happen is uh, there would be tremendous political pressure on whoever is in office uh, to renew those those tax cuts. Which is interesting in that if they, if we I mean, assume I mean, essentially you know the the what the way you know the bill or any Congress can undo what a former Congress has done, um, uh, except in regards to the CFPB, but we'll talk about it later. Um, but um, you know, so so it's it's all of these things are the, the you know the tax cuts are permanent uh, in unless and until we change our mind. So yeah, well, well, that's interesting because in terms of costing this out. Uh, you know, of course, the the figures that have been used in the analysis, and which basically come to you know say that over a decade it will cost uh, a trillion dollars or so, roughly, uh, will be more in debt. Though that doesn't include this longer term assumption that well, these tax cuts will just be extended, which would mean if there are no corresponding uh, uh, spending decreases, that's actually going to cost more. Considerably more than than what's been, you know, what Republicans are saying. But that's a little bit of uh, a trickery to kind of make it seem like it's less expensive than it really is. And another well, reason but why yeah, I'm very we're, we're doing this to satisfy the, you know, the bird rule. Um, uh, so I mean, then that that rule says that's a a ten year uh, look forward uh, view. I mean, it's sort of arbitrary, but but that that's what it is. So. Well, bird rule, bird rule aside, there was a day back in the dim, dark past, uh, the good old days, when there were Republicans who actually cared about deficits. But apparently, that well, day I, is long gone. Oh, I, I think I'll make the case that, that uh, they still do. But uh, yeah, as, as we move forward. Okay. Um, another difference is the estate tax. Uh, the, the House bill eliminates it entirely, and the Senate bill limits it, but doesn't repeal it entirely. Any sense, uh, Jay, on how you think that's going to work out? I, I think the I think the House would be okay going with the Senate version on this. Uh, there's there's a a nice symbolic um, uh, benefit you get in saying we're repealing the death tax entirely and so forth, um, but realistically uh is it going to make that much of a difference no because the the uh, uh the 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 extent to which the um uh, senate has has allowed greater um 
I'm losing. I'm losing my words today. I usually have the best words. Uh, you but, do uh, have good words, Jay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just not this morning. Um, the, sort of the standard deduction, if you will, for for the estate tax before it starts to kick in. Uh, that's that's raised to such a level that for most of your average American families, they're not going to be be looking at uh, dealing with it. And those that are over that limit are going to have the means and sophistication uh, to, to, to do some workarounds. Yeah, so right now it's uh, at, right now it's at five, five point five and a half million. And, uh, yeah. And the Senate bill would raise it up to 11 million. So yeah, that doesn't affect hardly anyone basically. Uh, another difference, uh, an important difference. Well, I, I think should, is I should say hardly anyone, but yeah, not well. Yeah, hardly anyone actually. I will say that it's a very tiny percentage. But anyway, um, the child tax credit now in the House bill. What well, I should say currently, it's a thousand dollars per child. The House bill would increase it to sixteen hundred, but the Senate bill uh, would, in, in part, at the urgings of uh, Senators Marco Rubio and Mike Lee, would uh, raise that up to two thousand dollars per child. Now, I, that's a change that I actually support. And I hope that makes its way into the final version of that. Do you think it has a chance, Jay? I, you know, I think if, if the real, uh, I would say, true um, philosophical conservative would look at that and say, eh, let's 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 get rid of." It. I mean, if if the goal is to uh, simplify, reduce, and simplify, uh, you know, adding in one other tax credit like this and then increasing it uh, is probably not not helpful. Uh, I don't know that the child tax credit, if you're looking at it from an economic development standpoint, does that much uh, in terms of, of injecting new revenue into the economy. Um, but, you know, there it is. I, I think uh, I think the Senate, or I think the House version is better, but uh, I, I think uh, that's something that both sides could probably live with uh, end of the day. So, I think it's a toss-up uh, as to which which version en- ends up in there, but it's also sort of a, you know, it, is it going to make a huge difference? No. Well, well, well. To me, that that represents. I mean, it's mean, uh, a couple hundred you, bucks, obviously, per per child, and also there's there's a phase out, I think, and uh, as to when you can claim it. But um, well, you know, I I think I think to me. Uh, that that represents uh, another one of these areas where you and I have a fundamental uh, disagreement about uh, about tax policy, and you know you're you're part of what's uh, sometimes derisively called, I think, the trickle down school in that tax cuts. That uh, go ahead, but, but keep in mind, I'm I'm arguing against interest. I mean, uh, uh, you do not have any children, and I have three, I so I would be a a, a bigger beneficiary of that of uh, government largesse, uh, who's paying me just to to reproduce. Um, and you're still I'm wrong, not sure why, why is it, yes, why, is it you're, you're, fair, why is it fair <laughs> that I should get, uh, uh, a tax credit because I chose to have children and you did not. Well, yeah. And I, I would not actually structure in a perfect world. I wouldn't structure this child tax credit in, in the way it is. I wouldn't give you it. I wouldn't give you the credit because you don't need it. I would, I mean, no, seriously, I, I, you know, you have to just, do it, just because, no, just because I don't like you, Jay. Yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would structure it based on household income or some other measure where it goes far more to the, uh, to sure. the people. And there who is need more, there is a phase out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Moving on, the mortgage interest deduction. Now, in the House version, uh, it's actually it actually goes down, but uh, well, it uh, it only uh, allows up to five hundred thousand dollars the mortgage interest deduction. Now, most people still would be able to take advantage of that because 
you know, right now it's, right. you know, most people uh, don't owe $500,000 of interest yeah. on their house. And the Senate bill basically just keeps it the way it is. And this is something that the, the, the home builders lobby and the realtors lobby have been really, really upset about. I think that this is a deduction that actually, I actually like the house, the house uh, version here a little bit better because I think the tax code should not encourage people to buy bigger and more expensive houses that they can't necessarily afford. So I actually think that the house version is a little bit better here, and I hope that stays. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you on that. It's nice that we could agree yeah. on something in this tax bill. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, I think there are a few other actual areas of agreement. Um, there are some differences in the tax brackets as well. Um, the top tax rate in uh, house version is 39.6%. Uh, Plus the there's Senate, a, that bubble rate that you can have in the house version too. Right. And the Senate version, the top rate's a little lower, 38.5%. I'm not really sure how that's going to play out, but that isn't a huge difference, I don't really think. Uh, in fact- well, in, in, I mean, I would say, in, in, again, that's where, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit, it's hard to say, I think ambivalent as to, as to what the, you know, the real true conservative position ought to be, because- um, the house version also has the the more flattening effect uh the the fewer brackets which i think is beneficial um uh but it's got the it's got the kind of kicker top rate uh the senate on the other hand uh still has the various bumps uh but doesn't have that so i to me it, it's a little bit of a toss up um uh, you know if, if you're asking me my personal opinion i i i think we're still better you know fewer brackets more flattening um uh but uh well you know, in that's terms just me. of in terms of the cost projections, the, the house uh, pro the house proposal is expected to cost on the individual tax brackets. Is the change is supposed to cost a one point zero nine trillion? The Senate version one point one seven trillion. So that's I mean that's reasonably close, I would say. So I see what you're saying in terms of toss up. Um, and then finally, uh, the corporate tax rate. Right, the, the House version has it at twenty percent uh, uh, starting in twenty eighteen. Uh, the Senate version, uh, 20% starting in 2019, I believe. Uh, and so I, what do you think about the corporate tax changes? Do you think there's well, going to be any? For, I mean, you know, I think first of all, it, it's, uh, that's the most important piece of this entire, uh, piece of legislation is changing the corporate tax rate from, from 35% to 20%. Uh, you know, I've made the point of, and, and we'll argue about this, this later about, you know, the costs of the bill. But I think there's, there's a substantial cost to doing nothing, uh, that isn't factored in, in any of these analyses. Uh, and that is if, if you continue to have this corporate tax rate that is out of whack with the rest of the civilized world, uh, we're going to continue to lose, uh, companies, employers, uh, corporations, uh, sort of hoarding cash offshore. Um, and, 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 you know, if this bill had failed, uh, I think that would have accelerated quickly, uh, and it would have been a bad situation. Um, so overall I say, uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's fantastic. That's 20%. Trump wanted 15, but okay. Uh, you know, Ireland's still at 12, 12 and a half or whatever it is. Uh, that's fine. But, but 20% puts us back in the game. Uh, and there are also some substantial incentives for uh, companies to to repatriate the uh, almost two trillion dollars uh, that's that's sitting offshore. So I, I think that's good. Um, my, uh, my preference would be sooner rather than later, uh, just because if you delay it to, to 2019, that's one more year where the companies just sort of keep this money offshore as opposed to bringing it in. 
Uh, so I, I, I think the, the, the quicker, the quicker it kicks in, the better. Well, you know, and this is one area where you and I don't really disagree a whole lot. I, I, I guess one thing I take issue with is this idea that you know corporations are suffering because of this. Now, the effective tax rate is considerably lower than you know the uh, than the listed corporate tax rate, and you know we we're, we see record we've seen years of now record corporate earnings, and they have all kinds of cash not not just stashed in other countries, but in, in here in the United States. And so this oh, where corporations are suffering so much, I think is is largely or is certainly overstated, but. That being said, well, I it's think not a, it's not a question of, of whether they're suffering or not. I mean, well, the, well, the, the idea that is, oh, this is well, it's no, it's the idea that oh, they, they're not they're not competitive internationally under the current tax regime. I just think that's that's just simply that's a difficult. Well, at least it's again being overstated by conservatives. But that being said. That being said, I think there is a lot to be said for lowering the actual co- you know, corporate tax rate and cutting out a lot of the loopholes and so forth. And so, you know, I, and again, that's something that plenty of Democrats have been saying for a while too. And that I think could have been the the basis of something that might have had something approaching bipartisan support. Uh, but of course, that's not the way uh, that congressional Republicans decided to go with this. But in any case, I, I mostly agree with you on that, Jay. I think that that's a good that's a good change. Um, I should say that, of course, that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about cost and, and that cockeyed optimist Mitch McConnell, so, so well known for being such a, you know, happy go lucky guy, he still insists that the bill will not only be revenue neutral, but has, has come out and said that it will actually increase revenue. And the Trump administration agrees with this, of course. And in fact, prior to the vote, Treasury said that it would provide you know, actual evidence to back that up, uh, evidence that would apparently be strong enough to overcome the conclusion of not just every liberal and nonpartisan economic analysis, but also every right of center analysis that the bill would increase the deficit. And here's a shock. They never provided any such evidence. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, this is pretty clear. This is this is something that's going to, you know, blow up the blow up the debt by at least a trillion dollars, even under dynamic scoring models, and probably a little bit more if those you know tax cuts are are extended. So, Jay, I know you wanted to make a, a slightly let's, different case yeah, for let's, that. Let's let's talk about this. Um, uh, first of all, uh, I, I stand on my my prior remarks uh, about there was a cost to doing nothing. Uh, that would likely have increased our deficit and our debt uh, that we are we are avoiding uh, by doing this. Um, the other piece to, to to look at is the the numbers we've been using the um, the it's the the Congressional Budget Office has assumed that the economy will average one point nine percent growth for the next ten years. That is historically low. The historic average. Is more is closer to three percent. Uh, that is, in fact, uh, more or less the growth we've had this year. Uh, it may be depending on the last quarter. We may have in excess of three percent growth. CBO is also uh, typically notoriously and almost always, I mean, wrong uh, in terms of these predictions. And it's always sort of in the same direction. It's sort of when there's a, a Democrat president, uh, there are tremendous uh, predictions of growth. They believed, for example, that the CBO uh, 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 predictions when um, uh, during the Obama presidency and the, 
uh, passing the stimulus was that uh, the economy would grow by 3.4%. Um, oops, I'm sorry. I, I, mis I misread that. Uh, that's okay. That's 3.4% is, is, the, is the average since World War II. Um, but, uh, you know, for example... Let me let me just stop you there before you get into that example. I should point out that idea of the average since World War II. We're talking about two very different economic areas. I mean, the era the era from 1945 to roughly the late 70s was an entirely different economic world for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, I think, sure. for instance, uh, uh, an era of much higher economic growth for again a, a lot of a lot of reasons uh and you know, for those who are interested in exploring that a little more i would highly recommend it. bob recommend bob gordon's book uh, the rise and fall of uh, uh, Econ american economic growth tyler cowan has written a book called the great stagnation which kind of is similar on the same ones but the point being is that what a lot of economists have concluded uh tyler cowan robert gordon larry summers that we're in a different era since really the early 80s, and those kind of projections of growth, the growth we saw from the end of World War II through the late, mid, late 1970s, a lot of times people put the break point at the oil shocks of, you know, uh, 73, That's that really was an unusual period. And actually, the growth that we can reasonably expect is more along the lines of uh, 1.5%, 2%. And I would argue that that that's when we're projecting these things, when we're projecting growth rates and worried about deficits, what we want to do is we want to err on the side of caution. We don't want to say, well, you know, let's just assume everything works out hunky-dory. And so, well, let's make that our projection. That's a, I think that's fundamentally irresponsible. Okay. And, and yet the economy has grown to 3% this year. Um, so, I, I mean, my, my, my point is, I, you know, it's sort of the, uh, uh, you know, I, I refute you thus. Um, but except, um, except, except you're not. I mean, it's like the people who are saying, "Well, you know, it was cold today, and so that must mean there's no global global climate change or something like that." You know, I mean that that's 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 not a you know, I don't think that's a, a refutation. I would say that just the the combined weight of almost every analysis, including, for instance, the Tax Foundation. The Tax Foundation is a right wing organization. Very friendly to dynamic scoring and these these overly optimistic uh, you know uh, uh, projections of economic growth. Even they say that the Senate bill would cost five hundred and sixteen billion dollars, and that's about the most right wing analysis you're going to find. So over half a trillion dollars for, from them. And and here's the thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that is that you know the tax, the corporate tax cuts. That's one that's one side of it, right? And and I think that those mm -hmm. cuts are actually. Can be you can make a good defensible case that, but the individual cuts, that that I think is just that I think is just fairly indefensible. They didn't need to do that. I think they were clearly doing it because they wanted to take care of their wealthy donor class, and they did that. And you know, yay for them, I guess. But that part of it is, I think, just just taking care of your special interest groups and not really taking care of the economy and just saying, well, you know what, we'll just let future Congresses figure out how to deal with this. And, and that, I think, is just fundamentally, like I said, irresponsible and, and wrong. Okay. Well, so here, here's the numbers I, I was looking for. And this, this is the uh, CBO projections uh, that after the recession ended, this is in uh, mid-2009, uh, they predicted a uh, economic growth of between 3.4% and 4.2% for the years 2010 to 2013. So again, this is the, this is the same CBO. 
who we were saying now is is uh, uh, so much uh, uh, so conservative and modest in the ex- expectations, then was saying uh, this unattainable 3.4 to 4.2 percent during those years. Now, of course, the actual rate grew at about. Um, uh, 1.9 percent of the the two percent that that we had. Um, but here's here's something to to consider though. What if they're off? Now here again, the CBO was off by uh one point uh one at least one and a half to two percent uh in in 2010. This is not that long ago. If they're off by only a little bit and the economy grows uh by 2.6 percent, so if they're off by point point seven. One half of the the error that they had last time. Uh, there's no deficits. If if the economy in the within the next ten years, if the economy grows at three percent for only three of those years, and all the rest are are, are closer to the one point nine, um, again, there's there's no uh, deficit increase. Uh, so I'm 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 thinking of this looking at historically. Um, and one one more one last last one. Um, when President Reagan uh, proposed uh, tax cuts, uh, he based his uh, estimates on on you know zero zero deficit uh, that the tax cuts would generate four point four percent growth within five years, uh, and he was widely lampooned for that. Uh, it was called the rosy scenario, um, and if you look at the the initial initial year, it was bad. Um, but um, if you look from um, uh, 1983 to 88, uh, the Reagan tax cuts, of course, coming in 86, uh, the the actual uh, growth was 4.42%, uh, uh, meaning the rosy scenario even underestimated uh, how it would perform. Now, you can say 1986, 88 was, was a different era, um, um, but uh, I, I mean, I, I think you have to look at, at uh at some history in this and and the fact that CBO and all of these analyses uh are are fallible they're human and uh uh if you look at the the broader picture they tend to be wrong uh towards towards one way and even even if they are wrong the other thing we're talking about is is increasing the deficit uh by 1 trillion dollars over uh 10 years uh, in which federal revenues will be f- roughly $47 trillion. So, uh, you know, in- increasing it by, by a very small percentage of, of what we're actually taking in, uh, if that even happens. And regardless, I still stand by my, my, uh, my first remarks that cost of doing nothing is, um, is, is unacceptable. Well, you know, again, I'll just I'll just come back and say that I think you are you are trying very hard to cherry pick things and and look at the most uh, the, the the most optimistic scenarios, and I think that's a, a fundamentally irresponsible way to 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 make projections when you're dealing with uh, when when you're dealing with the federal budget. But I understand. I understand what you're saying, and you're hoping you hope the economic growth is is higher than I think it will be. And you know, I, honestly, I hope you're right. It would be great if, if I were wrong here and, and so many people on the left are wrong and this unleashes economic growth three and a half, four percent. That would be I mean, who wouldn't want that? What what sort of person wouldn't want, you know, I'd be willing to, to eat pro mm, and say Well, oh. you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe so. But I, I just I just look at the weight of all these analyses, even from the right that say that that's just not gonna happen. And to me, and to wait, hold on, let me finish. To me, that counts for more 
then then no offense, Jay, I, I love you, but more than your off the cuff, overly opt, what I think are overly optimistic analysis. That's that's kind okay. of where I come down on that. Right. Well, so, again, my, my, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the history, but let, let's do this. Let's let's set a check in date that the you and I <laughs> we, we will agree to 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 look at. Let's say. You know, end of end of the first end of the fiscal year, end of the first half of uh, let's say June thirty or something on on or about that show. We will we will both put in our our growth predictions and see where we are uh, then, and just sort of do a a six month check in. Oh, I don't uh, think six months would be enough. No, I I think <laughs> I think there's no no seriously. I think there's there's enough of a lag for this sort of thing and so forth. I I think that we really won't know until say five years from now. Okay. Okay. Well, can I? Can I? Can I? Can I do a six month check in? Oh, sure. Of course you can. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Although I, yeah, I'm, again. you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I know we're going long on this, but this, but this is a no, big deal. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. And 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 I want to put in, uh, you know, we've talked about the numbers and disputes about whose predictions are better and 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 so forth. Um, but this on the the purely philosophical, ideological. And sort of maybe the the warm fuzzy thing, and and I it, and it always bothers me that the Republicans probably don't do this enough. Um, the whole idea that you know there there's sort of the presumption when you look at it from this of oh this increases the deficit that this is all the government's money to begin with. You know, I uh, yeah, and I, and it's I, not. Well, yeah, I really want to get to that before we do that. Though, speaking of you know deficits and and that sort of thing, uh, can we just take a, a a quick break to to pay our bills or at least to thank our sponsor for today? Absolutely, I want to make sure yeah. we get that in. Okay, uh, uh, our sponsor for today actually is Brooklyn, and they've been a sponsor to us in the past. Now, Jay, I assume that you don't spend a lot of time thinking about sheets. No, 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 not a me, lot. me neither. Me neither, actually. But, you know, uh, uh, sheets can make a big difference. And I've said in the past that I am a very picky person about sheets and, and other things as well. And and I can say from personal experience, Brooklinen makes great sheets, luxury quality without that typical luxury marked up price. And, you know, hey, if you're looking for a great gift idea, why not give someone something that they won't only use every night, but that can potentially make a real positive difference in how rested and energetic they are every day, right? And Jay, you you have Brooklyn and Sheets too, right? I do. I, I, I love them. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's a little bit of a, once, once you reach a, uh, buying nice sheets, it, again, it makes you feel like a grown up. Uh, it's really, you're, 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 you've arrived, uh, and uh, Brooklyn allows you to do that uh, without the, uh, I suppose, the typical arrival price. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I love my Brooklyn and Sheets. And if you try them, I know, Jay and I, we both know you'll love them too. And Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for Politics Guys listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code TPG at Brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklyn is so confident that you'll love your new sheets. They're giving you a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. So there's no reason not to give these sheets a try for yourself or as a gift this holiday season. Give the gift of luxury sheets. Now, the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code TPG. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. Okay, Jay, you know, I'm so glad you made that 
that point about that fundamental thing. Because that, that occurred to me actually today when I was getting ready for a show. And I thought, this is something I haven't What's heard you say? much about from, <laughs> well, no, from, from either side. And I do think this is incredibly important. This actually came out on our Facebook page where a number of, uh, a number of commenters on, on Facebook mentioned something along those lines. And I'm so glad you brought that up. So would you please kind of continue on that? Because I definitely have something to say on that. I feel like you're trying to bait me into something. No, here, no, but, I'm, I'm honestly uh, not. No, the, I, I swear I'm not. <laughs> no, no. I mean, look. The the, the idea is uh, the when we say that oh, this will increase the deficit. Well, that that sort of assumes that the government has a claim to X amount of of, of everyone's money. Uh, that everyone's money essentially belongs to the government, and it's just up to them how they want to divvy it up. Um, and obviously, I, I think that's that's inconsistent with uh, the way most people think and live their lives. I mean, they they earn their own money and they ought to be able to keep it. Um, yesterday uh, was it's, you know sort of a fun day in my my hometown. Um, not to get all girls and killer on you, um, but it's it's sort of a, a winter festival thing that we have in in uh, my little suburb, and everyone goes shopping at the little downtown uh small businesses uh and uh there's a parade and there's fireworks and uh santa's there and and we turn on the lights um and, you know and i went to breakfast at uh a little family run diner uh, and it occurred to me um these folks are going to have a much better year next year than they did this year uh because of the changes and mostly th in this case i would say the, the second most important piece of the whole tax reform is the changes to uh pass through entities which are the small small businesses the main street uh type uh places the mom and pop uh stores um that that are are now going to have have more of a benefit, and to the extent that you know there's there's been this concern of of our, we're losing our small towns or, or big corporations are taking over. Um, this is the kind of tax cut that that is targeted and makes a lot of sense for these these family run businesses. Um, and uh, for everyone out there of the liberals who are saying you know oh you know shop small and so forth, which which I completely agree with. Um, yeah, let's let's shop small, but let's let those those people keep more of their money. Uh, I, I, and I think that's that's tremendous. And I, I think there is a I, I'm I'm surprised Republicans didn't uh, push this this more um, uh, that that the way this this tax is really in, in a lot of ways pretty, um, you know, it, it tends to be more tax on the wealthy. And it, it, it does give a lot of breaks to. The, these LLCs pass pass through units that are small businesses, um. So that's 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 my feeling on it. Is 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 look people people view this as hey it's their money they ought to be able to keep it now that the government makes commitments that it uh it it can't keep um uh, then also the best way to start reining in spending is by uh turning off the faucet. Yeah, well, so you know, uh, again, and that's that's one way to look at it, and I I certainly. You know, understand and appreciate that uh, it's my money and government's taking it. Uh, uh, another way to look at it, though, and I think this is a way that this is where uh, uh, liberals, conservatives, sometimes kind of talk past each other. Because I think another way to look at it is well, uh, not so much it's it's my money, government's taking it, which is based on I would argue a more kind of atomistic, individual-centered view of society. Uh, another way to look at it, and I think an equally viable.
viable way to look, reasonable way to look at it is, is what is my fair share of a contribution to the common good? And that's based on a more sort of communal, interconnected view of society, one in which, you know, you, you remember back, uh, Jay, uh, President Obama at the time, that the whole speech about how you didn't you didn't build this yourself and that, right. you know, yeah. government and, and you know, I think and, and certainly conservatives made fun of that and so forth. But the point here, I think, is a very good one is, is yes, we are individuals and our individual uh, rights and prerogatives need to be, you know, upheld. But we are also part of an interconnected society. And, and my success isn't due just to my own efforts, certainly maybe largely in some cases more or less, but we are part of a society. And I, I, I believe that, that I believe, and well, yes, absolutely. And I believe <laughs> that we, like a lot of liberals, I think, believe that we all have a duty to give a reasonable amount of fair share to promote the common good. And, you know, then, then that's, that's a very there, different there, way of looking at it. Yeah, and, no, and I, I think that you. leads to different different results. And and I think sometimes when when liberals don't understand the whole it's my money kind of viewpoint that government's taking, and and when conservatives don't understand the contribute to the common good, that it's it's easy to just kind of get very angry and talk past each other on this. Like it's not, you know, it's certainly not to me that conservatives hate poor people and only care about themselves. And they're like a whole bunch of uh, Ayn Rand sort of people. There are some people like that. And I think maybe they have issues. But in any case, that's a whole other story. But, but you know, and that, that, that's, I think, the frustrating thing is that conservatives tend to focus on the individual freedom and liberty aspects of it economically and in other ways, whereas liberals tend to focus more on the communal aspects. And both of those things are viable. It's just that we, I think we don't come back to those sort of fundamental understandings and points of view probably enough, actually, in this and just right. assume no, that the other side just wants to destroy the country, which I think is just ridiculous. Right. I mean, there are a few well, people who maybe want to do that, but not too many. No, I'm sure. I'm sure there there always are. <laughs> no, I, look, there is. Uh, and again, when I as I hear you say that, I, I you're framing that argument about we're all in it together and and uh, we ought to help each other out and and so forth. And that sounds good. But I'm also reminded that there was another guy about you know 150, 160 some years ago who said something to the same effect, and that was. Uh, from each according to his uh, uh, abilities to each according to his needs. Um, and, uh, you know, that that didn't work out. And I think that's... Uh, well, I think that's a little unfair, you know but okay, I, yeah. You know the guy I I'm sure talking do, about. But <laughs> I think I, I think I think you're sort of I, I think you're sort of uh, creating a straw man there. I'm no one no one even Bernie Sanders isn't calling for any sort of uh, a Marxist no, sort of society. Bernie obviously Sanders, Bernie, Bernie Sanders obviously, loves that guy. Obviously there are there are a lot of uh, a lot of gradations between uh what uh standard Moderate sure. liberals are calling for and communism. Sure. So you know. Sure. Anyway, yeah, no, I know. I, you're and just- I, I understand, but I, I'm I'm again pointing out the, uh, you know, when we go down to the bedrock fundamental differences, I think sometimes that's that's what we end up talking about. It is sort of uh, Adam Smith or and Karl Marx. I mean, that's you know, again, those are the well, poles, no, I, I suppose. But and, and Adam you know. Smith was a lot less sort of individualistic, atomistic than most people understand. Sure, I he think was he's mostly been, talking about foreign I mean, trade and so forth and bigger picture, macroeconomic. But 
Yeah, Adam Smith actually saw a much bigger role for government uh, than than most conservatives who tout him as being this completely laissez-faire person. Uh, uh, actually, you know, would would like to admit, but I think that's still, in part, still less so a role for government than Marx. Oh, well, certainly, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's because a lot of people like to quote a little. Uh, little snippets of Adam Smith, but who've never read actually uh, Wealth of Nations or A Theory of Moral Sentiments. And, you know, I would encourage people to do that. They're both, they're both incredible, important documents. And I think uh, a more nuanced understanding of Smith would suggest he's not exactly, again, a, a, an Ayn Rand kind of person, uh, not at all. But, you know, kind of circling back to, to less theoretical stuff, um, I wanted to make this point. Let's assume uh, even if we assume that tax reform, reform will ultimately pay for itself, uh, again, I don't agree with that. The vast majority of economists on the left and the right said this won't happen. But let's let's just assume that just for the sake of argument, I think we need to think about what that means. Now, I mean, in the most general sense, it means, of course, that tax cuts will create so much economic growth that even at lower rates, they're going to generate more revenue than had their rates remained where they are, right? But yes. Given that the vast majority of these cuts in the plan go to corporations and the 1%, they'll get the vast majority of the benefits. Now, some of this will, in fact, trickle down. But I believe, and I think a lot of people believe, especially on the left, that it's unlikely to be much more than a trickle. So even if this pays for for itself, even if it meets the what I believe to be the unrealistic growth projections of the most optimistic conservatives, it's almost certainly going to just make our income inequality problem worse. And we already have higher income inequality than at any point than just before the Great Depression. So that's another grounds on which I have a real problem with that. And I wanted to just okay. put that out there. Um, Get that off your chest. Yep. One other thing I no, want to no, point I mean, out. I, and let's, I, would, I would recommend let's do another. We'll also do this. At, well, I'll do it at least at, at the six-month check-in. Uh, see what, what the, the numbers are on real wage growth um, for the first, first two quarters of next year. Well, again, I, I'm, I'm okay with that, but I think it's going to take a while for these to kind of – uh, You know what I'm saying? It, it may be an incomplete survey, but yeah. Okay. Um, one other thing we'll I want to, to point trends. out, yeah. sure, is is, <laughs> and I know we need to move on, but uh, I I wanted to point out my uh, my extraordinary disappointment with John McCain. It, it profound disappointment. I don't think it's going too far. Um, you know, in voting down the Obamacare repeal in July, I think Senator McCain made what, at least at the time, what I hoped was a sincere plea for a return to the regular order. Um. And I want to read a portion of his remarks to the Senate because I think it definitely applies here right now. Senator McCain said, our arcane rules and customs are deliberately intended to require broad cooperation to function well at all. The most revered members of this institution accepted the necessity of compromise in order to make incremental progress on solving America's problems and defend her from her adversaries. Let's trust each other. Let's return to the regular order. And of course, you know, he was he say, said that then and pretty clearly he just decided, oh the hell with that now. And and I guess maybe I maybe I'm wrong to to hold John McCain to a higher standard. I have a special place in my heart for John McCain. As you know, Jay, I was a, a big supporter of his run in, in two thousand and one of the only candidates I ever contributed to. I I, I believed in John McCain. And so Whenever something like this happens with him, it just it, it just sort of 
it just sort of strikes it, you know, it just, it's really bothersome to me. And I'm so disappointed in John McCain. Um, and I just wanted to point that out there. I said, shame on you, John McCain. Well, so anyway. I, and if, if you go back and listen to those, those shows, I think, uh, I think I made the point he was being disingenuous then. Yep. Um, I was you know, hoping you were wrong. About, uh, uh, but, you did. Uh, you and, right. and, and, and again, people, people lambasted me as, as, uh, 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 not being, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, you were uh, right. I was wrong. But, I, uh, I hoped against hope that John McCain was a better man than I thought he was, uh, at least in this aspect. Obviously, he's a hero for you know other very important reasons. But in this aspect, I, I, his hypocrisy I just find deeply disheartening. So anyway, um, so in the end, I hope, like I said, for the, for the sake of the country, that you're right and I'm wrong about this. I, I really do. I would love to come back. On this show, say in two years, three years, and say, my God, Jay, you know, this tax cut, that was the best thing. It was a, a great triumph, and, and I'm willing to admit it. That would be wonderful. All right. And All I right. hope we're able we'll to do make that. Make the date. Mark it in your calendar. So we both hope you're right about this. Um, but my more realistic hope is when all of this does start to fall apart, we're going to see a repeat on the national level of what we saw in Kansas when Republicans there put in place massive tax cuts that failed to meet their expectations. So my hope is that uh, my more realistic hope is that uh, in January of 19, a House Democratic majority uh, uh, will get. And then in January 2021, a unified House Senate under Democrat control and President Kamala Harris will start to roll back some of this stuff. And, you know, from from my from my lips to, to God's ears on that. So anyway. All right, Jay. Um. Before we move and, and on, the, the Irish, the Irish will be toasting you. But go ahead, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So, uh, before we move on to our next story, we want to thank our newest sustaining supporter, Dave from Sheffield Lake, Ohio, and I believe that's right around your neck of the woods, isn't it, Jay? That is. Wow. All right. Yes, yeah, it there is. There you go. Okay, and Jay Wright, or sorry, Jay David writes. I love the thoughtful voice you, Jay, and Trey bring to politics. It's nice to hear more than just talking points. Being a progressive, I tend to disagree with Jay and Trey, very good, David, uh, but I thoroughly enjoy and appreciate that they put real thought into their arguments and the political discussion. Thanks for, thanks for providing a great podcast. So oh, thank, thank you, you, David. You know, support of listeners like David is, is what helps keep the Politics Guys going. And if you'd like to join him and help out the show, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. Also, we, uh, in response to listener demand, who said, whatever happened to the PayPal link, I put that back up there so you can contribute to PayPal as well. Um, and you know, Jay, I think this might be a fitting point to make uh, a major announcement about the future of the Politics Guys. Major if you're announcement. Okay with that. Yes, very exciting. Major announcement. Yes. Yeah. Well, here it is. Here it is, folks. For almost a year now, we've been partnering with Audio Boom, the, the people who put us together with advertisers like, well, Brooklyn and Dollar Shave Club, Blue Apron, really all the companies whose products and services you've heard us promote on the show. But that's changing. Um, we've decided that we don't want to be a vehicle for companies to sell razors or mattresses or coffee or, or, or anything, really. Um, Not that we don't like those products, because no, we do. We absolutely do. We, we have never, so. in fact... There have been multiple occasions where, where audio booms come to me and, and said, will you guys promote this? And I said, no, we just can't do that. I don't believe in this thing. And so we've lost considerable revenue for that because we, we don't want to promote anything. We don't really actually use it and you know can say good things about legitimately. Um, but anyway, we're not marketers 
And to us, at least, you are not a market demographic to be sold to. That's not our thing. Um, and again, not that we're casting aspersions on commercial podcasts, which you know we still are. But I think to us, we found that ultimately, it's not really the right fit for what we're trying to do and what you know what we want to give you. And so, when our contract with Audio Boom ends in early February, and we've had nothing but great experiences with them, but we've decided not to renew it. Uh, instead, we're going to try to make a go of things through well, listener and foundation support. Um, now, you may have noticed that over the past few weeks, there have been a lot fewer ads on the show. This started to happen shortly after we informed Audio Boom of our decision, which we had to do a few months in advance based on our contract with them. Now, we understand why they might not want to steer ads to a show that they won't be continuing a relationship with. That totally makes sense. But it's been a major financial hit to us. And as the weeks go by and as we gradually or maybe not so gradually become ad-free, that hit's going to be even bigger. And so. You know, if you feel like what we're doing is worthwhile and you like this direction we're going to go in, move into, we hope you'll consider becoming a financial supporter, either as a sustaining supporter by setting up a monthly contribution through Patreon or with a one-time contribution through PayPal, though PayPal also lets you set up recurring contributions as well. So um, Patreon we like for various administrative reasons, but really anything you can do to help out if you feel it's you know worthwhile, that would be great. You know, this is going to be a difficult transition for us. It's going to be, mean a lot of work, but I think, Jay, right, you would agree that in the end, what we're going to come out the other end with, it's going to be an even better show for listener that provides even more. I, I, think, I think so. And, and what we're, what we're looking to do is, you know, we'll be, be you know, in, in talks with partnering with uh, some colleges and universities and some civic education foundations uh, and those kind of uh, uh, um, organizations that would provide us <clears throat> Well, sort of some some uh, I hate to use this word, Mike. It's a horrible corporate word, but uh, you know synergy. Oh, I was yeah. Uh, I, you know I again, I, I, but but no, I I think I think uh, places that share our objectives, uh, and and what we want to do is is you know be sort of an you know essentially not not just two guys arguing, but an educational uh, outreach uh, that that we can uh, spur conversation and. And you know, tell, help help show how to how to talk about these issues uh, with without without getting into name calling and and so forth because because we really believe that's something that is lacking uh, in American discourse today uh, and it's something that we need to return to and uh, we think uh, we can both agree I think we get a better country at the end of the day uh, if we do sit down and, and and talk to our neighbors and and we can have these kind of kind of reasoned debates so uh, there are a lot of other folks out there who think the same way and uh, we're going to be working to partner with them to create something that's uh, the podcast and bigger so yeah absolutely so we have we have a lot of other things in the works and more than just the podcast and because we like you said jay we, we feel this is a, a an important thing and we want to try to reach as many people and you know do our do our little part to, to try to you know uh promote civic discourse and understanding and so forth because you know uh, uh, all all ideological differences aside i'd like to think that's something that we can all agree is is an important common good all right. All right. You know, uh, let's, uh, I know we're, we're already running kind of long, but, but my gosh, I think they're the other big story of the week. We, we certainly can't not talk about that, right? A major new development in special counsel, special counsel, Robert Mueller's investigation of ties between Russia and the Trump campaign. Um, ardent Trump supporter and former national security advisor for what, like 24, 25 days. Yeah. Michael Flynn this mm -hmm. week. He was in there. Guilty. Yeah. 
<clears throat> he was there. He pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Now, it's not the crime he was charged with and pled guilty to. That's the big deal. He's likely to get a minimal sentence for that. But it's the other more serious offenses he and potentially his son haven't been charged with in exchange for his cooperation with the investigators. Um, now, while we don't know who Michael Flynn might have compromising information on, he obviously make a, he made a strong enough case that he had something worth dealing with to get off so lightly. And some people, of course, are speculating that the next domino to fall could be uh, his you know, top Trump advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Um, I don't know. Jay, what do you make of this latest news in the Russia investigation? You know, I'm I'm always one, and uh, you know, I'm I'm one even on the taxing. I said, look, look, we gotta we have to wait and see, and and sometimes that's not a, a very satisfying answer for you know, I guess a, a podcaster to just come out and say, oh, I don't know, let's wait and see what happens. Um, but my sense is that that the media is overblowing this uh, to some extent in that what. He, uh, Flynn lied about uh, were conversations or having conversations with the Russian ambassador uh, after uh, the Trump election, um, which I would say are not uh, most, I would say most people would say were, are not illegal and it's probably advisable and, and makes sense. I mean, I, I, I suppose someone can make the technical argument that it is a violation of the Logan Act, which we talk about every so often. Um, which was the 1799 prohibition on it's kind of conducting like a dead letter thing? Yeah, I mean that's not yeah, really and, a and, and thing. no one has has ever been prosecuted under it. Uh, and and Flynn's conduct uh, in having a an incoming administration reach out to ambassadors and so forth uh, is is uh, certainly not without precedent. Uh, and and it's it's hard to say, you know, talking about the Russians with uh, and essentially the message was. Don't overreact to the sanctions, which you can you can uh, agree whether that's a good message or bad message to send. But uh, it, it's much different. Uh, it, it's it, to me, it doesn't point directly to any sort of re-election collusion. Um, now, again, there may be other evidence we don't know about, uh, but but from what we see right now, I, I'm I'm not I'm not seeing anything that 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 points to. Um, and even so, I mean, the, the, the other pieces that someone instructed Flynn, uh, you know, presumably, you know, Kushner or Trump to send that message to the Russians. Uh, again, well, okay. Um, but there's, there's nothing particularly improper or illegal about that. Um, yeah. You know, now, he, uh, again, so, you know, it seems to me, and we've heard this again and again and again, the old hoary cliche, it's not the crime, it's the cover up. Um, I mean, that was, you know, we heard that during the Clinton administration during, well, now you could argue that the Iran-Contra thing actually was the crime and the cover-up, but uh, now you could argue it. It was, in fact. But but the point big is, is that, uh, you know, it, it seems to be in so many of these instances that it's the, it's the obstruction of justice, the lying to investigators sort of thing where people get themselves, that's where the, the real hole that they dig themselves Right. Um, well, and the, and the other thing let's let's consider is initially when when Flynn had made these these statements and was interviewed. Uh, this goes back to when when Jim Comey was was on the case. Um, he, Comey said he didn't see it worthwhile in prosecuting Flynn. He thought it was just a matter of he misremembered uh, when these conversations took place. Um and now Flynn is is uh, is taking the the hit, uh, and I think largely to protect you know family members. I think that's probably the biggest uh, biggest part of this. Sure. Um, so 
you know, I, I again, I'm uh my my sense is i'm i'm not seeing a huge story here uh but we'll wait and see what what Flynn says he knows yeah absolutely and you know i i have said from the beginning that uh while i understand uh my my uh, fellow liberals desire to see donald trump removed from office uh, ultimately the way i see this playing out is the most likely way i see this playing out is uh donald, if things get too close president trump issues uh issues a few pardons here or there and so maybe there's uh impeachment proceedings in the house if the democrats get a majority but i think that's as far as it gets uh, you know Fortunately or not. Now, I know there are some people on the left who are calling for what they call the normalization of impeachment. Uh, Ezra Klein and Vox is really kind of pushing in this direction. I think that's a horrible idea for so many reasons. We could do a whole show on why I think that's an awful idea, I think. But, but in any case, I think if you're hoping that that's going to happen, number one, I think it's almost certainly not going to happen. And number two, I think we need to be real careful about uh, about uh, removing a president from office who's been democratically elected for better or for worse. Uh, and so I don't think that's going to happen. And it's certainly I'm no fan of Donald Trump. I made that very clear, but I just, you know, I, I think I just, I'm very hesitant to, uh, to go in that direction. I just don't think there's going to be enough there in any case for that. So, all right. Um, you know, Jay, I know we're running along, but I hope you'll bear with me. Uh, I just have to say something very quickly about uh, to, uh, a mention of my all-time favorite uh, regulatory oh boy, agency, I, CFPB. <laughs> Who's in charge at the CFPB? This is a big story at the beginning of the week. It kind of got overshadowed, right? Um, you know, there was that whole dueling directors controversy. Uh, it wasn't exactly resolved, but it looks like President Trump's pick, uh, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney, he said that CFPB was a sick, sad joke. Um, it looks like he's going to prevail over Leandra English, who former director Rob Cordray named as the director basically as he was walking out the door because English asked the federal judge for an emergency injunction blocking Mulvaney from taking over. The judge, uh, Timothy Kelly, a Trump appointee, denied that injunction. Uh, Jay, I'm guessing that you think that Judge Kelly got it right, right? Oh, ab absolutely. And, and well, I think the the other piece of it, well, he got it right on a couple points. One, and this is more a legal point that doesn't go to the broader thing, but in, in pursuing an injunction, uh, one of the things that you have to show is that you will be irreparably harmed in the absence of the absence of that injunction, and I think that's the that's usually the biggest the biggest piece uh, of trying to get that injunction. That's the the main factor they look at. The secondary factor, although again this this varies from case to case, is the likelihood of success on the merits. Uh, I think English was she really had nothing to say on on the um, um, irreparable harm prong of this. And on the uh, success on the merits, well, the the CFPB's wow, that, why do I always get? It's hard to say that, that someone mentioned it, that's sort of well, the worst not, name. Not for me so much because it rolls trippingly off my tongue. Right, because you yeah, have a, yeah, you have a tattooed somewhere on your on your body. <laughs> exactly. I imagine. Um, but. But uh, no, even even their general counsel <laughs> said that Trump was likely to succeed on the merits. Um, and this, to me, it was one of these sort of just goofy uh, stories of uh, uh, someone, you know, standing up. No, I'm in charge here. And uh, for a day or so, the New York Times and Washington Post kind of took it seriously. And then they once everyone looked at it like, well, well, not really. Um, 
So it's it's a shame for Leandra, but you know. And this hasn't been settled, obviously. Um, It still has to work its way. Sure, she can still pursue the rest of the case on its on its merits. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I of course you know what my initial hope was that you know English would be right and and that somebody who didn't hate the agency would be in charge of it. But but I said you know I I need to I need to be fair here and actually look at. The Vacancies Reform Act and how it's been interpreted and and uh, the, the 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 relevant section of Dodd Frank and, and honestly, uh, I came down as, as much as I didn't want to in, in favor of uh, the Trump administration here in Mick Mulvaney. Uh, you know, the Vacancies Reform Act does not say that the president's ability to appoint is overridden by a subsequent statute. It just simply says that the president's power isn't exclusive. When there's a yeah. specific statute, That's and, and nor and nor could it. I mean, I think there'd be a serious constitutional question uh, about that. I mean, and again, if we could have a situation where agency directors uh, appoint their superiors and and they are not accountable to, you know, you you can't have someone appointed by uh, the president and uh, Congress simply refuses to to confirm. I, you know, I it's well, well, I I, I, mean, I, I would, might argue it, a little bit on that, especially with certain agencies that are designed for greater independence, but. But that aside, a second important point, I think, is that if you look at the language in Dodd-Frank, it says it permits the deputy director to act as director in the absence or unavailability of the director. Now, that's different than saying when the office is vacant. And the reason this matters, you might say, well, what that doesn't really matter. Well, when the office is vacant is actually specific language that Congress has used in the past when they intended a provision for an acting head of an agency to you know take over when a previous head stepped down and so my you know maybe that's sloppy you it's, know it's the difference it's the difference between if rich 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 Corday is on vacation uh and can't be reached exactly. uh and the deputy can take over as opposed to i quit and there's no one as it, as director exactly and to me that was really the kind of the, the thing that that kind of pulled me over to that side is that if congress has used more clear language in the past drafted that, you know, for that, and they didn't do it in this instance. Well, I don't care what Barney Frank and Elizabeth Warren say the intent was. The language seems to indicate something different to me. And so while I don't think Leander English's claim is as groundless as the Trump administration claims it is, overall, I think the way that the evidence suggests to me that it's a weaker argument. So, uh, you know, maybe Barney Frank should have been clearer in the legislative language. I'd be more inclined to agree, but... Absence or unavailability does not mean the same thing to me as when the office is vacant. And I wish they would have written the statute differently and it would have been a little easier call for me, but but they didn't. So there we go. And I really wanted to get that in because, you know, what I noticed is that almost everyone on the left basically said, well, clearly Leandra English is right. And almost everyone on the right said, well, clearly Mick Mulvaney. And oftentimes we do that, right? We, we start from what's our preferred outcome. And we'll just argue back from that and figure out. And and I wanted to point out that, you know, sometimes I think it's important to not to maybe you start from there, certainly, but to to try to be honest about it and try to look at both sides. And sometimes if you do that, you come to a conclusion that you may not like, but that, you know, seems the most uh, in accord with with, with the facts and the logic and so forth. And this was not a conclusion I wanted to come to. But uh, in this case, I I, unfortunately, I think that the Trump administration is right here, and I just wanted to point that out. So there we go. Yeah, well, you know, I'll end that. I, I end that you know what? You're, yeah, I think we, we ought to end, end with that. And it reminds me of uh, 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 Justice Scalia, uh, who is, uh, again, would um, – 
or I think it was John Roberts too, or someone who said, this, "If if you always reach the result uh, that that uh, you think you want to, then you're probably not being a very good judge." So. Absolutely, absolutely, and I totally agree with that. So, all right, well, that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We do hope you like what you heard, and that you will check out today's sponsor, Brooklyn, where Politics Guys listeners can get twenty dollars off and free shipping by going to brooklinen.com and using promo code TPG. Listener support more important to us now than ever. If you'd like to help us out. Go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link to become a sustaining monthly supporter or the PayPal link to make a one-time or regular contribution. If you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. iTunes, iTunes, I can say it, also does help. And if you want to reach us, mail at politicsguys.com or our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politics. Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.